0: Good morning, everyone. Kids, have a great time in Gospel Project. Thanks to those of you who will be helping to lead them. Glad to see you uh, here today and looking forward to enjoying uh, some evening time with you tonight. We have uh, a whole list of new members to let you know about tonight, so come back especially for that. Uh, Last week, Tad helped us in Philippians chapter 4. Did a really great job presenting what the Bible talks about as uh, contentment. So if you missed it, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Today we're going to finish the book of Philippians, so turn with me if you would to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, Philippians 4 will be in the latter half of that book. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair in front of you, and you'll find Philippians 4 on page 678 of those Bibles, 678. Feel free to take that with you if you don't have a Bible of your own. It's been a lot of fun to walk through this book with you this fall. Uh, I hope if you've been with us, you've enjoyed it. It's been a real pleasure to work through. We will start uh, next week, as you're turning there, um, three short, a short series of three messages looking at uh, how to prepare for Christmas. So we'll do that, Lord willing, next week, the week after, and then on Christmas Eve be thinking about who you can bring with you, especially to that Christmas Eve gathering at 6 p.m. on. Brilliant. This is going to be a good morning. So, Philippians chapter 4, if I could set it up for us with a little bit of discussion. Uh, There is a love so great and a grace so grand that once you really come to terms with it, Everything changes. We're all looking for this love and grace. Whether or not we recognize it, that is the search that we are on and everyone we ever lock eyes with is on. Our attempts to find this love and grace in the world are futile, they're futile because we live in a world that's fallen where things are not the way they were designed to be. And so this is no longer a world of true love and genuine grace. It's a world of counterfeit. But you don't need me to tell you that because you've experienced it. You've experienced it since we were last together here. In some way, shape, or form, all of us met over the past week with hardship, difficulty, disappointment... Whether or not it was us providing that for somebody else, or we were the recipients of it ourselves. But our text today is going to invite us to lift up our heads and to see that there is a different way to be lived. There's a different kind of partnership to be provided. And if we look, we'll see around us people driven by an innate desire to be loved and compelled to by a desperate need to rest under a grace of somebody greater than them. This is what causes some of you college students this week to make yourself physically ill while you're wrestling with finals. Because there's this sense that if I don't get the grade that my parents or myself or the teacher will see as a lovely grade, then somehow I'm not a lovable person. It's the same search for love and grace that so often drives senior adults into the very depths of despair and depression. Getting old is one of the hardest things any of us will ever do. And if for the majority of our lives we've believed that love and grace are mainly things we get from other people, then when those people die... So does love and grace. This desire for love and grace is what compels women to eat far too little, exercise far too much, and put far too much of their identity in what they see in the mirror. I even think it's the same exact desire that in a very different way compels men to give their souls away to golf or video games, work or porn. We're all looking for the same thing. We just happen to go about it in different ways. So church, lift your heads. Look around. This is what everyone is doing. A fallen world is full of fallen people with desperate desires for love, pursuing it in fallen ways. It's what it means to be human. But there is a love so great and a grace so grand that once you really come to terms with it, everything begins to change. Everything. No stone of a heart remains unimpacted. The love and grace I'm talking about don't originate, of course, here in a fallen world. They come from somewhere else. Because there's nothing left here to make up a genuine, free, self-giving, sacrificial, totally pure love. If you're looking for it in the person next to you, you're in big trouble. And so are they. Because we can't possibly love each other like that. This love is so great and this grace is so grand precisely because they're so different than the cheap substitutes that we spend the majority of our lives settling for. This love and grace I'm referring to, of course, is the love and grace of God. Put no more plainly than this passage in Romans that's on the screen. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for those who deserved it. That's not what it says, but how often do you live as though that's what it says? Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, it's with joy that I can tell you today that God loves you because he loves you. God's gracious to you because he's gracious to you. That's precisely what makes it so pure. It has absolutely nothing to do with you. Nothing. And no matter who is in your life who loves you and is gracious to you, they don't love you like that. They're not gracious towards you like that. They can't be. This can only come from God. Every other love we see in this world is a love tied to behavior or attractiveness or possessions. In some way, shape, or form, it is commingled with good desires and a desire for self. It is impossible for it not to be. But God, God loves us purely, completely, intimately. He loves us not because we deserve it, certainly not because we decided to love him first, but simply because he loves. Wow! This is the best news there could ever be. You don't even recognize how unlovely you are. But God does, and God loves. So we haven't even read our our passage yet. We can go ahead and go. This is the message of the Bible. God loves us because he loves us. We, as human beings, are people who deserve only wrath from a just God because we've spit on him, we've ignored him, we've tried to live life without him. We've rejected his good rule in terms of our own tyrannical self-rule. But his love is so great and his grace is so grand that if you are in him, he has fully, completely, finally, already forgiven you and embraced you and adopted you. And you're his. Not someday you will be, but you are already This is what you've been singing about this morning. This is what Christianity is. This is what Christians call the gospel. So really, I only have one question for you today. What would be different about you if you lived every moment of every day in light of this love and grace? What would be different? Everything. Now, we've seen this fall together throughout the book of Philippians, in part, how that works itself out. How God's love and grace meet a sinner and then begin to change that person. Some things happen quickly, and for some of us, it seems like it's overnight. Others are a bit more difficult to work with, so God's got to roll his sleeves up. It takes a bit longer for God's grace and love to begin to evidence themselves in the way that we live. But that's invariably what happens, is everything begins to change. And so we've seen this in part through a recurring word that's kind of surprising in the book of Philippians. It's the word fellowship or partnership. If you were here back in August, you may remember we poked fun at that word a bit. Uh, Christians tend to use the word fellowship as code for food. But in the book of Philippians, there is no food, but there's a whole bunch of fellowship. So just for review, or maybe for a few of you who weren't here, let me show you a few of these instances in order to prepare us to read the text for today. For example, it'll be on the screens. Philippians 1, 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all all partakers. That's the Greek word for fellowship, partnership. You are all fellowshippers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. What Paul is getting at here is that When we share in God's grace, we become willing to stand with people who speak the gospel and willing to stand and speak the gospel ourselves. And so a very special partnership, fellowship, begins to happen because we've shared the same experience of being people won over by the grace of God. And therefore we desire to share it with others. You with me? that's the first time it comes up in the book. Chapter two, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, there's the word again, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. What's he saying? He's saying when we share the miracle. Of the Holy Spirit infusing God's power in us, first to save us, but then to empower us for a life of mission, then we start treating each other really, really, really differently. We begin to think of each other first and ourselves second. And so there's a partnership, a fellowship in how we relate to one another. Then the word comes up again, same chapter, Philippians 3.10, that perhaps the most famous verse in the whole book, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, you're grabbing your eraser trying to get that one out of the book, right? I'm down with sharing, but not in suffering. But here's his point: When we come to know the love of God in Christ, then the most important thing to us becomes knowing Him even more. And the pathway to know Jesus more isn't going to be different than Jesus' own pathway. Jesus' pathway was a pathway of suffering. So if we want to know Him and be changed by Him, then we're also going to have to walk a path of suffering. Well, that's not some weird masochism, like you like pain, but you enjoy the result. Hardship breaks us at our knees so that we will kneel before him in prayer and know him more. So if you want to know Jesus, then what we do is together, we partner, we share, we fellowship in hardship that we could know him more. Now today we're going to see one more case or two more of this word fellowship or partnership. One more type of fellowship forms, Paul tells us, as we come face to face with the love and grace of God. Then another thing happens. There's another way we share together. And it may be more offensive to you than saying we're supposed to share in suffering. Maybe that's why it takes place at the end of the book. If you've made it this far, you might be able to take this dose of medicine, Paul seems to say. But before we read it, let me do something I don't normally do. Let me tap dance. Just kidding. Let Let me share briefly about my own experience with this topic, just for a moment. Um, I did not want to do this, but uh, I really believe I'm supposed to. I became a Christian at age uh, 11, and uh, frankly, I knew what God required. I believed he existed. I believed what the Bible said to be true, about Jesus, to be true about Jesus. And I was scared as hell of hell. So I, to the extent I understood and knew, God saved me. And while, while heaven itself opened and welcomed me in, I found very little in my experience to also open up and let me in. So I was saved, but honestly, my life didn't look much different. Temporarily, I had some new desires, and those were for God and God's people. But I was a jacked up 11-year-old. And eternity changed, but the here and now, as far as I knew, didn't seem to change very much at all. Has anybody else had that experience? I was in a setting where no one seemed to talk about that. So I I was not only typically weird, but I was even more weird. Because I seemed to do the, the public things. You walk the aisle, you pray the prayer, you get dunked in the water, and everybody hugs and kisses you and pinches your cheeks, and then it's all great, right? Isn't that how this works? It wasn't in my experience. So I was the classic case study of what today people call reverse pride. So on the outside, I looked strong and confident, but on the inside, I hated life. I always felt stupid, behind, incompetent, unwanted, unloved, incompetent. Did I say that one twice? I felt it twice. And for years and years and years, all I wanted to do was die. I hated life. And every Sunday, I went to church. I wonder who's sitting here today that comes here every Sunday, and that's the way you come. There's at least one person in the room who knows what you're feeling. There has never been a kid more selfish and self absorbed than I was. Now a lot of teenagers deal with these kinds of things through the big three. Alcohol, drugs, sex. Uh, I didn't get into any of those things. But I wasn't any better off. Uh, My drug of choice was humor. So I became the class clown and spent more time in the principal's office or sent home than in the classroom. And this culminated in being permanently expelled from Tennessee public schools. Like, don't ever come back, ever. We had to move states. (laughs) I'll let you meet my mom and dad and then we'll see if you're still laughing. So 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, that's how it was. But at 18, something happened. What happened is much longer of a story than I can share with you today. But in summary, I can say that I came to see and to appropriate the love and grace of God. And everything began to change. God, through the gospel, had already given me everything I needed. Already. Have you ever looked for your hat or your keys only to find your hat on your head or your keys in your hand? That's what I was doing. I was searching for the grace and the love of God in idiotic foolishness when I already had them. God had already saved me. All I needed was already given me in Christ. But for some reason, at 18, by God's grace, those things clicked. And my sense of worth no longer needed to be bound up with what people thought of me, but what God declared to be true. And strangely, I started to love reading the Bible. I don't think I'd ever read a book at this point. I just cheated my way through school. I began to care about people instead of looking to crush them with my words so that I could feel good about me. And one of the more surprising changes... That happened in this time frame was that the way I thought about money and possessions was transformed. What is that? It's a whisk. Students, good food is coming. <laughs> Um, at the time I worked for a construction company, uh, making $4 an hour. Yes, I have always been a bill of health and fitness, ripped and tough. So construction work is a natural choice, right? What are you laughing at? (laughs) Um, at $4 an hour working after school until dark, that doesn't result in very much money, right? So what, what little money I had, I, I enjoyed using on myself. Had very little. But then came graduation, high school graduation. This was probably the biggest shocker of my parents' life. And like money began falling out of the sky. It was the most amazing thing card after card after card. Why didn't we just invite the entire town to graduation? Because they all send money. It's magnificent. So I collected something around, something close to $300. And it was as though I won the $5 million lottery. Now this was 22 years ago. So close to $300 for a kid making $4 an hour was more money than I had ever seen. And I began to drool with anticipation over what I could do with $300. Uh, I daydreamed of traveling to distant lands. (laughs) But then, now don't, I'm not getting weird on you. I didn't hear a voice I didn't. My Bible didn't fall open. And these words leaped off the page. No prophet came and told me. I simply got this internal sense that God wanted me to give every single dollar to my church. And I was a little bit upset with God. Nothing in me wanted to do that. I gave chunk of that $4, that hourly wage every single week. Why wouldn't God let me keep my 2 dollars Come on. Right? God wants us to be happy. And happiness comes from what we buy ourselves. So I should use this money that God gave me. You're not laughing much anymore. So I didn't tell anybody, but the next Sunday, I put it in the plate, the whole thing. And looking back, uh, this is the first time I'm telling this story. And I'm doing so out of a sense of obedience. When I think back on the journey that God has Lifted me up out of. I think that was one of the most pivotal moments of my entire life. Had I not given it, where would I be? I don't know. But I was able to, not because I'm all that giving or because I wanted to, But because I didn't need the love and grace that that 290 could buy me, I already had some that was a whole lot better. So I was free to give it up. That make sense? And it hurt. But the joy that came as a result of being obedient was worth so much more than 290. Acts of obedience, particularly when it comes to money, increase our capacity to receive even more of a sense of God's love. There is a love so great and a grace so grand that once you come to terms with it, Everything changes. Even what we think about when we think about money. And that's what our passage is about today. And by no coincidence, Paul saves this last use of the word fellowship or partnership for this issue of money. If he started the book with it, we probably wouldn't have made it till the end. But here we are. Chapter 4, verse 14. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, meaning when he first came to Philippi and preached the gospel and the church was born. When I first left Macedonia, no church entered into, there it is again, same word, No church entered into fellowship or partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And here's what he's talking about. Paul, if you've never read Acts 16 and 17, put your Bible on your nightstand when you get home and make sure you read it before tonight. Those two chapters tell the story of this church, Starting, and they are—I uh, don't know what the modern equivalent, the current equivalent of Jerry Springer is. I don't—I don't know. So I'm dating myself here a bit, but um, it's like a Jerry Springer episode. I mean, it's bizarre and crazy what happens when this church begins. the The founding members of the church at Philippi were a rich Asian woman a former demonically oppressed slave girl and a Roman guard. That sounds more like a bar joke than it does a church plant. But that's what Acts 16 tells us. And friends, that's what the gospel does. It surprises us. It rescues all different kinds of people out of all different backgrounds. And then, puts them together into the same family. And the more diverse they are, the better the gospel's displayed. Because then it's not that they're the same, but that the same God has rescued them. So Acts 16 records these people coming together and the ones who had families also being saved and a small little church in Philippi being born. And Paul ends up essentially needing to leave town because he gets beat up. And he didn't learn his lesson. He just traveled roughly 95 miles to the next town. Thessalonica started the same thing again. So he's in Thessalonica doing the same work, starting a church. This is full-time hard work. And the church at Philippi, these brand new believers, apparently more than once, send somebody trekking up there like there's no, there's no account with a square and you just get money. So somebody with a sack of coins walked 95 miles to bring money so Paul could eat while he preached the gospel. Pretty cool, isn't it? And apparently they did this more than once. And this was 10 years before the paragraph we're reading. Now how do I know all that? It's not because I went to seminary. It's because I just read the Bible. Acts 16 and 17 can tell you that. Anytime you're walking through the letters in the Bible, one of the great things you can do is go to Acts and see, does this talk about the same town? And if you don't want to take the time to read the whole thing, just Google it. I'm serious. And you'll find, huh, huh. The Bible is like, it fits, goes together. Pretty amazing. Verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ. Single men, I'm sorry. This book doesn't end with greet them with a kiss. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's take just 10 minutes and try to work through this together. Through a set of three S's. Anybody want to dab for me? Thank you, Pam. The situation we'll talk momentarily about the solution that God provided, and then the Savior. So first, the the situation. If you're new with us today, it's important to know that God wrote the book of Philippians through a guy named the Apostle Paul. And um, Paul, as he wrote it, is anybody else hot? Golly, I'm like dripping. You needed that. I got a witness in the back. Raise your hand all the way up. Tad, would you help us? Those of you who are not hot, deal with it. Sorry. Paul was locked up in prison. By this point, he's been in prison over two years. Multiple different cities. Now, a Roman prison life did not look like an American prison life. There was not cable TV and three squares a day. There was a chain connected to your leg and the other end connected to a guard. And that was it. If you ate, it was because someone brought it to you. If you were cold, you stayed cold unless someone brought you a blanket. If you had something to pass the time, like something to read, or in the very rare case... Something to write, it's because someone brought you papyrus. And so what Paul is referring to here is the church in Philippi knew of his need somehow, all those miles apart, and they sent Epaphroditus with an offering, a gift. And probably very likely that money was used to purchase food, blankets, and some paper, and guess what Paul did with that paper? That papyrus, he wrote the letter we're reading. And so this gift from a small little church, some 1,960 years later, is still bearing fruit. We're still reading and learning and hearing God's voice, Because this little church chose to give. Isn't that cool? That's the situation. And for the most part, that's the solution. The church gave and the gospel continued. Churches were blessed. People were reached. And friends, there is no difference today. Things still work that way. God's solution to Paul's needs so the gospel could spread was partnership from the church in Philippi. God's solution to the geographical proximity around us, to the people around us, the extremely rich a few blocks away in the high rises, the incredibly poor, On the park benches right across the street the student from flagstaff and the scholar from china how are they going to hear the gospel they're going to hear the gospel because of the partnership of church on mill that's the way god's designed this to work so paul tells us here at the end of the letter brothers and sisters Gospel giving is inseparably part of what it means to partner in Christ. Once we know the love and grace of God, then we begin, for some of us, very resistantly, but for others, enthusiastically. Either way, you've got to do it. Because you'll grow as you do, and needs will be met. Now, one of the things Jesus himself said about this whole matter is Jesus said that human beings are always treasure-oriented. We are always treasure-oriented. Meaning, we will always live either for the little kingdoms of self that we create with the stuff we can buy, 290, that I had all kinds of little things for my kingdom I wanted to get. Or we'll live for the big kingdom of God. A kingdom where people are being rescued out of death and given life. And there is no middle ground. It's one or the other. Now these aren't my words, they're Jesus' words. Matthew 6:19 says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That was all I was interested in with that 290. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? Why has God wired it this way? He could do it any way he wants. He didn't have to set things up in such a way that partnership means God's people give to God's work. Right? I mean, he owns everything. He could just make it rain. Do it however he wants to do it. Why did he do it this way? Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, when we're caught up by God's love and grace, we begin to treasure the spread of the gospel through local churches more than we treasure anything else. And so we... Organize our lives in such a way that we can give to it. And we do so not out of compulsion, but out of the joy of partnership. And so Philippians 4, 15 to 23, shows very carefully that partnership meets needs. It met Paul's needs. That it both produces and evidences spiritual growth. Meaning, When we give, as long as we're not doing it to be thought well of by whoever opens that envelope, or by the person who sits next to us and we happen to put our gift in face up. If if that's not what's motivating our giving, then it produces more growth, why? Because it requires trusting God. Most people don't live in the world I was living in. That that 290 didn't impact me at all. I went without some wants. My parents were putting food on the table. But the rest of us, when we give, that means we got to go without. And so that requires trust in God. And that produces spiritual growth. But it also evidences it. Because... Again, unless it's ill-motivated, then why would anyone choose to give away their money? Like, that's, that's stupid. Keep it. Buy what you want. But God's people know that God bought them out of the market of sin. And so they want to give as Jesus gave. So it both produces and evidences spiritual growth. That's the whole fruit bit. Paul's saying, understand, I'm not bringing this issue up because I want you to send more money to me. If you read it carefully, he doesn't actually thank them. He thanks God. Sneaky little booger. He thanks God and thereby recognizes the generosity of the church of Philippi. And finally, it says very, very clearly that it pleases God, that our giving pleases God. It uses Old Testament sacrificial language to do so. Now this will seem really odd to us, but it's hearkening back to passages that talk about the smell of the animal burning on the altar, rising up and being pleasing to God. Now that's weird, but the animal died in the place of the person who offered the animal. And who died in your place? So, Christian, when you give, it's hearkening back to the grace of God expressed to you in Christ. And that is a pleasing aroma to the Father. So you please God simply by doing what God has enabled you to do already with the stuff he's already given you. That's the the solution to Paul's needs was the church. The situation was his imprisonment. Now what makes all of this possible? Well it's the Savior. Verse 19 My God will supply every need of yours per his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God's storehouses are endless. And God promises to provide everything you need. Everything. Now I didn't get what I wanted. I actually wanted some big speakers for my truck. That's what I was going to buy. And that would take me too far away, distant places. I didn't need that, though. God didn't promise me that. But he promised to provide for my needs. And he will provide for yours as well. God never writes a bounced check. There is no overdraft with God. Now, church, in closing, how do we apply this great passage as we close out the book? To those of you in the room who are believers, let me simply point to two things. One, would you prayerfully assess your own heart? Has the grace and love of God captured you? Have you moved beyond I get to go to heaven when I die and I'm not afraid of hell anymore? Not beyond in the sense of that doesn't matter anymore. But into apart from him I can do nothing. And his love and grace mean I never, ever, ever need to manipulate and use someone again. I am free to love and be friends and forgive and give up resources. Not because I'm great, but because God's great. Have you, are you there? If not, you can't conjure that up. But you can repent of living on less than that and ask God to help increase your capacity to recognize what he's already given you. And, and then once you've wrestled with that, you can ask, am I living a generous life to help spread the gospel? That may mean you have a quarter to give. That may mean you have a quarter of a million dollars to give. The amount doesn't matter. But the desire to obey the Lord does. And so I would encourage you to plan for partnership. Jill and I celebrated 20 years of marriage this week. They're clapping for you. 21 years ago, we started planning for partnership with envelopes and cash. We're a little old fashioned, but we didn't have much. So we took their checks, we cashed the checks, we put bills into the envelopes, and when the money was gone from that envelope, that was it. Maybe you need something as archaic as that but plan for partnership. We're trying something similar with our kids. They have a give, save, spend drawer. When they get their allowance, money goes in each category. Teaching them, modeling for them. Life's not about your stuff. Although everything else you'll ever hear will tell you it is. But plan to be generous. And yes, give first to your church, but don't stop there. Give to missionaries. Give to parachurches. Share with members. Open up your home. Loan out your car. Don't throw a fit if your bike gets stolen. Just steal somebody else's. <laughs> Hold possess- possessions loosely because God holds you permanently. Permanently. Now, to the non-Christians in the room, thank you for being here today. You are searching for love and grace. You won't find them because you give up your money to a church. Keep your money. You can find them, though, in the grace and kindness and death of Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about him, we'd love to tell you. You're about to hear a story of someone who has been rescued by him. Stick around and ask somebody afterwards to tell you more. Let's pray. God, thanks for this fun, wonderful, encouraging, life-giving journey through the little letter called Philippians. Thank you for your tenacious patience with me. Father, teach us to give because you've given to us. And we pray, Lord, that more people would be impacted through this little church than we ever dared to dream. In Jesus' name.